But it's good to be here, and it's good to um, look through the word of the Lord with you again. Uh, I'll pray, and then uh, we will look at Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Before we do that, let's pray. Oh Lord and our God, we ask your assistance this morning. We ask your help, Father. Uh, you promised that as we, uh, when we gather together in your name, you are with us. And we are gathered together today, Father, to consider the gospel, to consider your word, to consider your glory, your justice, our condition before you apart from him, and the fullness and sufficiency of grace that you have given in him, and his reign at your side, and his interceding and advocating on our behalf and for us, and his promised return and the imperishability of our hope because of the resurrection. Father, we ask that you would... Make your graces new again this morning uh, for us and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Leviticus chapter 4. I'm going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 4 this morning. Uh, I will read through the whole thing so we get a sort of a feel for it. Um, and then after doing that, I'll, I'll give you some, um, some sort of parameters for our approach. So this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull, From the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood. And sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance to the tent of the meeting, tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox uh, of the sacrifice of the peace offerings and the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burned up. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I've been reading this sections of Leviticus You may think ill of me based on what I'm about to say, but I've been reading sections of Leviticus with my children these days, and one thing I can tell you is it's gripping stuff. 
you're talking about cutting up an animal and all the body parts and everything I've just read, kids don't miss a beat, which is great. But then you face the challenge of explaining it to them. So you can take a shot or you can quickly go into prayer before they have time to ask why you've read what you've just read. So I've been pulling out all kinds of tricks um, these days, but actually it's wonderful stuff um, to read, uh, again, because it's so, gra- it's so graphic, um, and, and it's such a, a foreign world to us. This is the religion of ancient Israel, and it is, it is really at, at the sort of the backbone of Scripture, and the Lord is really laying out here the basic elements of what He will do in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, he is reconciling the world to himself. That's a great sort of summary of the gospel, that one statement. What exactly does it mean? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? You can give a short statement of the gospel, or you can work your entire life learning more about the gospel and enjoying the riches of the grace of God given in Christ. Here, way back in the early pages of Scripture, at the beginning of of the religious life of the nation of Israel, he's beginning to sort of piece together, reveal to people, sort of lay out the basic elements of what Christ will accomplish, who he is, and really what the gospel is. And these, the kind of gory nuts and bolts of the sacrificial system are filled with the riches of Christ. So here's how I'll approach this text. I'm going to look first at verse 4, and that tells you sort of exactly what's going on. Then we'll go, look, go back and look at verses 1 to 3, and then we'll look at 5 to 7, and then to the end. We'll do it something like that. So verse 4 reads this way, he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. Animal sacrifice. It is animal sacrifice. He lays his hand on the head of the bull. He transfers his guilt to the head of the bull. That is uh, a, a, kind of, a kind of anointing. It's a kind of uh, legal transfer uh, so that the sins of the priest are placed on, sort of symbolically, sort of religiously, are placed on the animal, preparing the animal to count for the guilt for the priest. The animal will be the propitiation. That's the, that's, that's the technical word. He will be the propitiation for the sin of the priest. And he has to be sort of officially counted the stand-in for the priest. And that placing the hand on the head uh, of the bull is that moment when publicly, sort of before everyone's eyes, before the Lord, officially, according to the Lord's instructions, the bull then becomes the official substitute for the priest. Animal sacrifice is right at the center of Israel's religion. And you'll see that Leviticus opens with several chapters describing animal sacrifice. Peace offerings and and, uh, different offerings. And we come to chapter 4, we have sin offerings, but it's all animal sacrifice. Different animals, almost always the same instructions. But the idea is that this slaughter is at the center of Israel's approaching its God. And the Lord lays out these very specific regulations, how it should be done, who should do it, what kind of animal, exactly how and the animal should be sacrificed, the blood, the body parts, what should be done with all the parts of the animal, and so on. So the Lord has given very specific 
instructions as to how Israel should carry out its religious life. At the end of the book of Leviticus, as at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord explains that if Israel follows all of these rules, he will bless them in the land to which he is leading them, into which he is leading them. And they will live, live prosperous lives, and he will protect them from their enemies, and they will be safe and happy and mighty, and they will dwell with the Lord. If they break these commandments and they fail to follow the commandments of the Lord, he will lift his protection and they will be exposed and their enemies will have their way with them. The land will not reward their labor. Their crops won't grow. And the land, which stands for the presence of God, communion with God, the land will reject them. So the whole point is here Israel is receiving sort of obnoxiously detailed prescription for what it means to be God's people. So he has revealed himself to them as the God who created all things in heaven and on earth. He has created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator God. And then he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He made of them a great nation under slavery, under oppression and exploitation. They are being overworked and abused. In that condition, he made them a great nation and led them out so so that he would be the, the creator of heaven and earth and the deliverer of his people. They walked out of Egypt unarmed without lifting a weapon. Their enemies were subdued and destroyed before their eyes and they walked out of slavery. In fact, their arms were full and their animals were burdened with the wealth that they took from the Egyptians. They plundered as they left. It's a great symbol. It is the towering image in the Old Testament of the grace and the deliverance of God, of the age to come, of the new heavens and the new earth that we will inherit by no work of our own the wealth of the nations. And so he's introduced himself as the creator of heaven and earth and the God of Israel, the deliverer of Israel, their savior. And he invites them to dwell with him, to be his people. And then he explains to them exactly what it means to be in the presence of God, to be his special people, to be pleasing to him. There's a lot of sort of visceral language about pleasing the Lord and aroma pleasing to the Lord. A treasured possession, Exodus 19, you will be to me a treasured possession. It's very loving and tender. And again, it's, very, it's, it's physical language. He smells. It's a pleasing aroma. And he has affection for, to be an object of the love of God, he's teaching them, means to be like God, to be holy, to show godliness in everything that they do. And so here at the very center of Israel's religion, where they consciously come before their God, he says, your sins must be atoned for, blood must be shed, and you must be washed pure and perfect in order to be my people. 
That's sort of the overall lesson of, of all the laws of Israel and most sort of especially more acutely the procedures for their religion. It's about atone. It's about being God's people. If you look to God and you say, I want to call him my God, then he says, be holy as I am holy. So at the very center of Israel's religion is this animal sacrifice. Leviticus 4.4. 4. So let's back up and look at verses 1 to 3. Because this is a special case. It's a special case of animal sacrifice. Again, there's a lot of animal sacrifice, but this one is a little bit unique. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, so Moses I speak to Moses, I'm, I'm not the, you know, the Lord speaks to Moses, and he sends Moses to speak to Israel, so there's an intermediary, there's one who goes in between, and he comes to the people and he says, they don't hear the voice of the Lord, they see Moses saying, thus says the Lord, and Moses tells them, and here, here's the specific case, if anyone sins unintentionally, that's the first thing, um, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. That's the first sort of thing to notice. The second thing to notice is verse 3. If it is the anointed priest who sins. The next sort of further down, in, starting from verse 13, it's a congregational unintentional sin. But here it's a specific person. One person committing an unintentional sin, and that person is the priest. So first of all, what's an unintentional sin? There are many ways to read this which lead to theological confusion. An unintentional sin is not a... Well, you might think unintentional means I didn't know there was such a rule. I didn't know that wasn't allowed. It was... You know, there's no speed limit posted. So I can't be held accountable for driving too fast because you didn't make it clear that 50 is the limit or whatever it is. So that would be sort of legal recourse. You're guilty of this wrongdoing, but you didn't tell me. Fair enough. You may go. That is not the situation. We can see that very clearly because um, here it says, uh, against the Lord's commandments, things not to be done. That means it's something which is positively done against the Lord's commandment. Not against a hidden sort of rule that God didn't tell us about. Uh, we didn't know that God sort of has a preference for this and not that. He didn't tell us. I did something. I wasn't, it wasn't my fault. How could I have known? That's not a possible interpretation of this. Another possible interpretation is what some people call a sin of omission, which is I should have done something, something but I didn't do it. That also is not available to us. That option is not possible here because it's a Lord's commandment against something that should not be done. So you'll notice, you may have noticed that the Ten Commandments, many of them are negative. Do not, you shall not, thou shalt not, if you still have your King James out. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Why is God such a grump? Why is that so discouraging. Why is why does the Lord approach first with no's and you should, and prohibitions? Because he's entering a context of sin where the inclinations of our hearts, the expressions of our nature, the tendencies of our minds are self centered and sinful. Our natural state is not one of obedience but one of selfish mutiny, rebellion, wickedness. 
We have to use the strong language because Scripture does. We are not naturally polite. We are not naturally kind. We are not naturally godly. We do not seek after God. No one seeks after God. The Lord encounters His... He brings a people to Himself to the foot of Mount Sinai. And He says, you will not do these things. Conversation with God must begin with the elimination of sin. With the exposure of sin to the light. So this is an unintentional sin, but not an innocent sin. It's not a sin of omission, but a transgression of a given law. The idea here, again, why does God come out negative? The idea here is that the Lord wants to teach Israel something. Again, he wants to teach them about holiness, but he wants to teach them to self-examine. He wants to teach them that what he sees is more than what they know. He wants to teach them to second-guess themselves. He wants to teach them to think, I feel like I'm righteous, but am I really? I think I obey, but do I really? I think I'm a decent guy, but am I really? He wants to invite them not to lean on their own understanding, but to look to the Lord, to measure and to know themselves against a holy God. Not to enter the throne room of God ready to negotiate, ready to list my good deeds, ready to sort of rehearse my resume and say, look, my friends think highly of me. The world has approved of me. I have this degree and this, I'm a member of this. They loved my work on this. The Lord says, no, you stand before me. Now examine yourself. Think about what it means. He's inviting them to self-scrutinize, to know themselves before a high and holy, perfect God. Psalm 19, David says, declare me innocent of what? Of hidden faults. Declare me innocent of hidden faults. David knows that God is holy and perfect and that the hidden corners of his own mind and heart are open plain as day before a God who is everywhere uh, present and who knows all things. The Lord is inviting his people to know their sin. He's inviting them to be present with him, a high and holy God. So an unintentional sin are the things hidden in our hearts and God draws our attention to those things so that we would always look first to Him. 
I think it's very common to read this and think, first of all, that can't be possible that I'm guilty of an unintentional sin. It can't be possible that God, that there are sins that I didn't mean to commit. It's not even, I don't even have a chance. It's not fair. But the Lord is raising the awareness of his people of their unholiness. He's exposing it to the light for a single purpose. You see, if we stop there, it's abusive. It's unkind. It's tyrannical. But he raises it to atone for it. It is mercy to be made aware of your sin. He is inviting Israel to a life of repentance and sorrow for sin that leads again and again to the perfect, to the perfected mercy of God in Christ. A Savior who died for you is an awkward, it's an uncomfortable idea. Paul said it's foolishness to the Greeks who thought they knew so much. But what they didn't know was themselves before the perfect holiness of God. Against the backdrop of the God who dwells in light unapproachable, our sin is unbearably clear. And the need for atonement becomes clear painfully clear so let me just say that one more time the focus of the law on unintentional sins is a gesture of mercy he wants Israel to see he wants us to see that we don't need to be encouraged or patched up we don't need a little help we don't need our grade curved we don't need an extra extra credit assignment We don't need one more cup of coffee. We are in desperate, desperate need of deliverance from sin and judgment. And then it's a very sort of strange case. He says, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord. there's really so much there. I just want to look at the sort of peculiar case that you have an anointed priest who's going to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. So it's a a little sort of strange twist in in the religion of Israel because it makes perfect sense if you think about it to have sort of a, a community of people and there's all kinds of sins going on and they feel very guilty and thank goodness we have a priest who can go before the Lord and say they're so sorry. Um, he's sort of protected. You know, how, is, how, can, how can this guy, why this guy? How is this guy n- not going to be sort of struck dead when he approaches? Why him? Because if anyone else, right, if anyone else approaches the Lord, well, we're all guilty of sin. The, the, there's been, there's a certain way that this man has been prepared to approach God on behalf of the people. You can read in, this, in, in the book of Exodus, about how the, the priests are chosen, how they're selected, how they're set apart from the rest of the people. They have special clothing. 
They have all kinds of ornamentation, and there's a sort of ceremony of ordination by which they are set apart with blood, blood on the ears, blood on the fingers. They're, they're, they're symbolically sort of washed and dressed holy. Nobody else dresses like that. Nobody else goes through the ordination ceremony, and so they are set apart from the people. That is a holy man, you might think, specially prepared, selected, prepared, set apart to approach God on behalf of the people. And thank goodness, because none of us are worthy. But then there's this strange case where it's like, wait, this guy can sin too. What happens if he sins? Even worse, when he sins because he's our representative, the, 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 the guilt sort of spreads to the rest of us. The whole organism is poisoned. Our only lifeline now is contaminated. So what do we do? Well, what, you know, there, there are no options. So the, the guy has to offer a sacrifice on his own behalf. We've got nobody else. So what's happening here? It turns out the special guy is a normal guy. It turns out we're all guilty before God. It turns out his heart is no different from mine. It turns out he too is born in sin. It turns out the only thing that made him different is the word of God. That God said, do this and I will accept and I will will forgive and you will be accepted. Follow my instructions. You know what? The blood of animals couldn't matter less. The writer of Hebrews says in fairly pointed terms, the blood of bulls and goats can't possibly atone for sins. So what's happening there? The instructions, you see, come from God. They are infused with His grace and promise. We can't offer what we want to the Lord. We can offer what he has required according to his instructions because he has touched it with his grace and made it powerful to save. His word draws from the power of the death of Christ on the cross and it draws from the power of the resurrection of Christ because he didn't sin. So he can lay out before the people a way to be accepted by God, a way to be washed clean, to be made new, and to have hope for peace, prosperity forevermore. Only because, the God, because God himself has ordered it. So that man is no different except that According to the Lord's instructions, he's been set apart and given this duty. And we see a little bit of the silliness of it in the fact that he has to offer a sacrifice for himself. You see it later throughout this passage that even their places of worship must be atoned for. You see, nothing they do, the holiest things in all of Israel must have the blood of sacrifice dripped on them that they will be acceptable to God. He's teaching them about his holiness in the hope that they will come to him. He's teaching them about his holiness 
that they too will seek holiness, that they will be his people, a treasured possession, that they can be objects of his love. So it's the anointed priest who sins. He brings guilt on the people, and he offers for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd. Every detail of this is filled with more gospel. The Lord accepts, for example, only domesticated animals. They're not allowed to capture wild animals and drag them unwilling to be sacrificed. Only an animal that has been domesticated and therefore is obedient may be offered to the Lord. Only an animal that is property and that bears value for me. I can't offer something that costs me nothing. The Lord is teaching the people about the price of sin. So he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He places his hand and legally transfers his guilt to the goat. Again, that's not a real thing. It's a thing of grace. The priest has to think of the absurdity of transferring the guilt for sin to an animal. He has to see. It has to be clear to him that it's, it's, it's a strangeness, that it's futile were it not for the fact that this is an extension of the grace of God. It is the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Christ that fills these things with meaning and power. If we endlessly offered animal sacrifice to God until the end of history, it would be much blood for nothing. God can extend mercy because his son will come to be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And the anointed priest, and moving to five, and the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of the meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. All of these offerings, again, their whole religion must be washed. You know, sometimes we think, um, we think well, you know, we come to church and at least, you know, we do everything we can to please God. You know, what, our job on Sunday is to come and, and just, just really mean it for God. Uh, just really give our all emotionally and physically. And it doesn't, you know, fight with the kid. Get him out. We can't be late. We have to do, you know. Church, we can easily sort of slip into the idea that church is something that we do and God is impressed. That worshiping God so hard really moves him to be compassionate and forgiving. That God is not really pleased with what we do Monday to Saturday. But when we show up to church and we really mean it, he kind of rethinks. He says, you know what, this guy really cares. That is not at all the principle of grace. That's confusion and the stink of self-righteousness. 
Worship is offered to God only because God made it possible. Even the, the, the tabernacle, so ornate and so intricate, even according to the Lord's design, they must atone for it. It must be, uh, must be purified by the blood drawn from a dying animal. And the priest shall put some of the blood. So let me move to um, 8 and 9. You see all the body parts, and they're pulling and separating the fat and all, th- all those kinds of things. I'm going to say two more things, basically. I'm not going to read through, the, through that stuff again. I'm going to get up to... Let's think of um, 8 to 11, 8 to 12, that kind of thing. And we'll look at the, the very ending uh, of the paragraph last. I just want to point out that when the, when the, when the Lord sort of calls Israel to himself and he, and he designs this really, really very strange religion in which they're sort of constantly cutting up animals. They have guys dressed in costumes, in funny hats, and with special sort of this and this and this, and they're cutting up animals and burning and, and doing... No, not six times, seven, seven times, man. No, over there no, over there, you sprinkle, you don't pour. And that, oh, you have to do that. That's supposed to come last, man. You did it for... And they have to do all this stuff, and oh, you do it wrong, you're out, man. You're out. Go, you know, and no wrong animal. It's got a brown spot. It has to be no blemish. Take it back. Give me the right one. All of the, all this stuff. Many people will point out to you, you know, if, if they've read a blog or two, that Israel did not invent animal sacrifice. Actually, you don't have to read a blog for that. You know that from Genesis chapter 4. This is not the first time animal sacrifice is offered. In fact, the ancient Near Eastern world, probably the whole world, is covered with people offering sacrifices to all kinds of gods. It sort of seems to be something that the human heart says needs to be done. Probably whatever goes by the name of religion involves some kind of sacrifice. Still today, in many places, animal sacrifice. Sacrifice offerings, maybe, of food, of money. Somehow to try to placate God, to kind of appease whatever it is that sort of runs the world, whatever it is that pulls the strings behind the observable world. Human beings everywhere know that somebody's watching. Human beings everywhere know that they don't control their destiny. Human beings everywhere know that they must match their ambition with appeal to forces unknown. Try as hard as you want Follow the pattern as perfectly as possible, but your life is not in your control. In every human heart, there is an itching, sort of pestering awareness that we are not alone. And that whatever is out there is not happy with us. The Lord calls Israel to himself. And he says, you will be my people. But you will be my people because I will provide what I require from you. 
God is not impressed with sacrifice. He is not manipulated. Israel's religion is not superstition, but grace. These are signs and seals of the lamb God himself will provide. They are signs and seals of the perfection, of the obedience of one who comes from among us but is without sin. This is an extension of grace. Make no mistake. Don't let anybody tell you the Christian God is mean and grumpy. All this blood sacrifice, all these prohibitions. Make no mistake. We don't know our sin until we see the ugliness of death. We don't know our sin until we see the God-man dying on the cross. And we don't know the perfection of the deliverance that he offers until we see him raised never to die again. Again, the Lord is inviting Israel to this kind of life. And I, this has to, we have to get this right. He's inviting Israel to know their sin before God. He's inviting them to a life, and us too, to this life of regular repentance and sorrow for sin. We should be sorrowful people. The fear of the Lord should everywhere characterize Christian life. And every day we should be before him. Wondering about the unintentional sins and praying with David. Declare me innocent in the name of Christ. Of hidden sins and wrongs and transgressions. But he calls us also to a life. Of hope unshakable. Repentance and sorrow for sin against the backdrop of the reign of the one who died and was raised for us. A life of sorrow, as even Jesus lived, but a life of hope and joy. As even Jesus did, it was for the joy held out to him that he endured. So lastly, Verse 12, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap. Doesn't sound clean. It's religiously clean, but it sounds sounds a little bit dusty. But to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. The thing to notice there, the, the result, sort of the end goal in mind here is a pure people. A holy people, not a people dressed up to look holy, not a people that kind of acts holy, but a people really, truly holy, that before a God who can see the hidden things in our hearts, plain as day, before that God, we are approved and accepted. 
And it's not only, I don't want it to be for you kind of a supernatural sort of, sort of Gnostic, thing. oh yeah, I'm accepted by God, I feel better. But to have a profound peace. You see, those things that he sees are working chaos deep inside of our hearts and minds. Sin is a real thing. It's not a religious fiction. You see, God is not less real than we are or than our world. He's more real. And really our roots and our foundation, our beginning and our end are in the spiritual realm, are before God, are in relationship with God. And the idea of the unintentional sin is to make us, if you want, sort of relationally aware, to remind us that we don't live and move and have our being in a material world where what matters is my comfort today, my stress-free evening, my fun with my friends, the vacation I have planned, the sufficient salary, and... There's nothing wrong with those things. But it is deadly to think that that's where it all ends. You see, unintentional is an invitation to the spiritual world to be reminded that cutting up animals isn't the end, but God is watching. So that when things aren't right, we don't think, well, I can fix it with a better dinner. I can fix it if I just you know, go out and not have to cook tonight. Oh, I, I don't feel great. Oh, that didn't go well. Well, you know, let, let's just take the evening off or let's, let's take a trip or let's... Unintentional sins. It says to Israel, don't be busy. Don't be busy with the things of this world. But be mindful of the God who holds your eternal life in his hands. He wants a pure people because a pure people is a joyful people. A pure people is a hopeful people, not a religiously useless people. It's not people of no good, but humble people, truthful people. Courageous people, loving people, a people with a joy that spills over into eternity, not a comfort that ends when I wake up tomorrow. So the sacrifice must be removed from the people, it must be taken out. He became sin, and he is removed and taken out of Jerusalem and outside of the city. Our sins are silenced on the cross of Christ without the death of that man who never sinned, there is no peace on this earth. Let's pray.